Section 4. Mrs. Lirriper's Legacy, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joyce Martin. Charles Dickens, 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 2. Section 4 by Charles Dickens. Mrs. Lirriper's Legacy. Chapter 1. Mrs. Lirriper relates how she went on and went over. Ah, it's pleasant to drop into my own easy chair, my dear, though a little palpitating, what with trotting upstairs and what with trotting down, and why kitchen stairs should all be corner stairs is for the builders to justify, though I do not think they fully understand their trade, and never did. Else why the sameness? and why not more conveniences and fewer drafts, and likewise making a practice of laying the plaster on too thick, I am well convinced, which holds the damp, and as to chimney-pots, putting them on by guesswork like hats at a party, and no more knowing what their effect will be upon the smoke, bless you, than I do if so much, except that it will mostly be either to send it down your throat in a straight form, or give it a twist before it goes there. And what I says, speaking as I find of those new metal chimneys, all manner of shapes, there's a row of em at Miss Woolsingham's lodging-house, lower down on the other side of the way, is that they only work your smoke into artificial patterns for you before you swallow it, and that I'd quite as soon swallow mine plain, the flavor being the same, not to mention the conceit of putting up signs on the top of your house to show the forms in which you take your smoke into your inside. Being here before your eyes, my dear, in my own easy chair, in my own quiet room, in my own lodging-house, number 81, Norfolk Street, Strand, London, situated midway between the city and St. James, if anything is where it used to be with these hotels calling themselves limited, but called unlimited by Major Jackman, rising up everywhere and rising up into flagstaffs where they can't go any higher, but my mind of those monsters is, give me a landlord's or landlady's wholesome face when I come off a journey, and not a brass plate with an electrified number clicking out of it, which it's not in nature can be glad to see me, and to which I don't want to be hoisted like molasses at the docks, and left there telegraphing for help with the most ingenious instruments, but quite in vain. Being here, my dear, I have no call to mention that I am still in the lodgings as a business, hoping to die in the same, and if agreeable to the clergy, partly read over at St. Clement's Thanes, and concluded in Hatfield Churchyard when lying once again by my poor Lirriper. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Neither should I tell you any news, my dear, in telling you that the Major is still a fixture in the parlors, quite as much so as the roof of the house, and that Jemmy is of boys the best and brightest, and has ever kept from him the cruel story of his poor, pretty young mother, Mrs. Edson, being deserted in the second floor and dying in my arms, fully believing that I am his born gran, and him an orphan, though what with engineering, since he took a taste for it, and him and the major making locomotives out of parasols, broken iron pots, and cotton reels, and them absolutely a-getting off the line and falling over the table, and injuring the passengers almost equal to the originals, it really is quite wonderful. And when I says to the Major, 
"'Major, can't you by any means give us a communication with the guard?' The Major says, quite huffy, "'No, madam, it's not to be done.' And when I says, "'Why not?' The Major says, "'That is between us, who are in the railway interest, madam, and our friend the Right Honourable Vice-President of the Board of Trade.' And if you'll believe me, my dear, the Major wrote to Jemmy at school to consult him on the answer I should have before I could even get that amount of unsatisfactoriness out of the man, the reason being that when we first began with the little model and the working signals beautiful and perfect, being in general as wrong as the real, and when I says laughing, what appointment am I to hold in this undertaking, gentlemen? Jemmy hugs me round the neck and tells me dancing, you shall be the public grand, and consequently they put upon me just as much as ever they like, and I sit a-growling in my easy-chair. My dear, whether it is that a grown man as clever as the Major cannot give half his heart and mind to anything, even a plaything, but must get into it right down earnest with it, whether it is so or whether it is not so, I do not undertake to say. But Jemmy is far outdone by the serious and believing ways of the Major, in the management of the United Grand Junction Lirriper and Jackman Great Norfolk Parlor Line. For, says my Jemmy, with the sparkling eyes when it was christened, we must have a whole mouthful of name, Grand, or our dear old public, and there the young rogue kissed me, won't stump up. So the public took the shares, ten at nine pence, and immediately when that was spent, twelve preference at one and sixpence, and they were all signed by Jemmy and countersigned by the Major, and between ourselves much better worth the money than some shares I have paid for in my time. In the same holidays the line was made and worked and opened, and ran excursions, and had collisions, and burst its boilers, and all sorts of accidents and offenses, almost regular correct and pretty. The sense of responsibility entertained by the Major as a military style of station-master, my dear, starting the down train behind time and ringing one of those little bells that you buy with the little coal scuttles off the tray round the man's neck in the street did him honour but noticing the major of a night when he was writing out his monthly report to jemmy at school of the state of the rolling stock in the permanent way and all the rest of it the whole kept upon the major's sideboard and dusted with his own hands every morning before varnishing his boots I noticed him as full of thought and care as full can be, and frowning in a fearful manner. But, indeed, the Major does nothing by halves, as witness his great delight in going out surveying with Jemmy, when he has Jemmy to go with, carrying a chain and a measuring tape, and driving I don't know what improvements right through Westminster Abbey, and fully believed in the streets to be knocking everything upside down by act of Parliament, as please heaven will come to pass when Jemmy takes to that as a profession. Mentioning my poor Lirriper brings into my head his own youngest brother, the doctor, though doctor of what I am sure I would be hard to say unless liquor, for neither physic nor music nor yet law does Joshua Lirriper know a morsel of, except continually being summoned to the county court and having orders made upon him which he runs away from and once was taken in the passage of this very house with an umbrella up and the major's hat on 
giving his name with the doormat round him as Sir Johnson Jones, K.C.B., in spectacles, residing at the horse guards, on which occasion he had got into the house not a minute before, through the girl letting him on the mat, and he sent in a piece of paper twisted more like one of those spills for lighting candles than a note, offering me the choice between thirty shillings in hand and his brains on the premises, marked immediate and waiting for an answer. My dear, it gave me such a dreadful turn to think of the brains of my poor dear Lirriper's own flesh and blood flying about the new oilcloth, however unworthy to be so assisted, that I went out of my room here to ask him what he would take once for all not to do it. For life when I found him in the custody of two gentlemen that I should have judged to be in the feather-bed trade if they had not announced the law, so fluffy were their personal appearance. "'Bring your chain, sir,' says Joshua to the littlest of the two in the biggest hat. "'Rivet on my fetters.' Imagine my feelings when I pictured him clanking up Norfolk Street in irons and Miss Wolsingham looking out of window. "'Gentlemen,' I says, all of a tremble and ready to drop, "'please to bring him into Major Jackman's apartments.' So they brought him into the parlors, and when the Major spies his own curly-brimmed hat on him, which Joshua Lirriper had whipped off its peg in the passage for a military disguise, he goes into such a tearing passion that he tips it off his head with his hand and kicks it up to the ceiling with his foot, where it grazed long afterwards. "'Major,' I says, "'be cool and advise me what to do with Joshua, my dead-and-gone Lirriper's own youngest brother.' "'Madam,' says the Major, "'my advice is that you board and lodge him in a powder-mill "'with a handsome gratuity to the proprietor when exploded.' "'Major,' I says, "'as a Christian you cannot mean your words.' "'Madam,' says the Major, "'by the Lord I do.' "'And indeed the Major, besides being with all his merits "'a very passionate man for his size, "'had a bad opinion of Joshua.' on account of former troubles, even unattended by his liberties taken with his apparel. When Joshua Lirriper hears this conversation betwixt us, he turns upon the littlest one with the biggest hat and says, Come, sir, remove me to my vile dungeon. Where is my moldy straw? My dear, at the picture of him rising in my mind dressed almost entirely in padlocks, like Baron Trenick in Jemmy's book, I was so overcome that I burst into tears, and I says to the Major, Major, take my keys and settle with these gentlemen, or I shall never know a happy minute more, which was done several times both before and since. But still I must remember that Joshua Lirriper has his good feelings, and shows them in being always so troubled in his mind when he cannot wear mourning for his brother. Many a long year have I left off my widow's mourning, not being wishful to intrude. But the tender point in Joshua that I cannot help a little yielding to is, when he writes, one single sovereign would enable me to wear a decent suit of mourning for my much-loved brother. I vowed at the time of his lamented death that I would ever wear sables in memory of him. But alas, how short-sighted is man! How keep that vow when penniless! It says a good deal for the strength of his feelings that he couldn't have been seven year old when my poor Lirriper died, and to have kept to it ever since is highly creditable. But we know there's good in all of us, if we only knew where it was in some of us. 
and though it was far from delicate in joshua to work upon the dear child's feelings when first sent to school and write down into lincolnshire for his pocket-money by return of post and got it still he is my poor lirriper's own youngest brother and mightn't have meant not paying his bill at the salisbury arms when his affection took him down to stay a fortnight at hartford churchyard and might have meant to keep sober but for bad company consequently if the major had played on him with the garden engine which he got privately into his room without my knowing of it i think that much as i should have regretted it there would have been words betwixt the major and me therefore my dear though he played on mr buffle by mistake being hot in his head and though it might have been misrepresented down at wolsingham's into not being ready for mr buffle in other respects he being the assessed taxes still i do not so much regret it as perhaps i ought and whether joshua lirriper will yet do well in life i cannot say but i did hear of his coming out of a private theatre in the character of a bandit without receiving any offers afterwards from the regular managers mentioning mr buffle gives an instance of their being good in persons where good is not expected for it cannot be denied that mr buffle's manners when engaged in his business were not agreeable to collect is one thing and to look about as if suspicious of the goods being gradually removing in the dead of the night by a back door is another over taxing you have no control but suspecting is voluntary allowances too must ever be made for a gentleman of the major's warmth not relishing being spoke to with a pen in his mouth and while i do not know that it is more irritable to my own feelings to have a low-crowned hat with a broad brim kept on indoors than any other hat still i can appreciate the major's besides which without very malice or vengeance the major is a man that scores up arrears as his habit always was with joshua lirriper so at last my dear the major lay in wait for mr buffle and it worried me a good deal mr buffle gives his rap of two sharp knocks one day and the major bounces to the door collector has called for two quarters assessed taxes says mr buffle they are ready for him says the major and brings him in here but on the way mr buffle looks about him in his usual suspicious manner and the major fires and asks him do you see a ghost sir no sir says mr buffle because i have before noticed you says the major apparently looking for a spectre very hard beneath the roof of my respected friend when you find that supernatural agent be so good as to point him out sir mr buffle stares at the major and then nods at me mrs lirriper sir says the major going off into a perfect steam and introducing me with his hand pleasure of knowing her says mr buffle ahem jemmy jackman sir says the major introducing himself honour of knowing you by sight says mr buffle jemmy jackman sir says the major wagging his head sideways in a sort of obstinate fury presents to you his esteemed friend that lady mrs emma lirriper of eighty one norfolk street strand london in the county of middlesex in the united kingdom of great britain and ireland upon which occasion sir says the major jemmy jackman takes your hat off mr buffle looks at his hat where the major drops it on the floor 
and he picks it up and puts it on again. Sir, says the Major, very red and looking him full in the face, there are two quarters of the gallantry taxes due, and the collector has called. Upon which, if you can believe my words, my dear, the Major drops Mr. Buffle's hat off again. This, Mr. Buffle begins very angry, with his pen in his mouth, when the Major, steaming more and more, says, Take your bit out, sir, or by the whole infernal system of taxation of this country, and every individual figure in the national debt, I'll get upon your back and ride you like a horse, which it's my belief he would have done, and even actually jerking his neat little legs ready for a spring as it was. This, says Mr. Buffle, without his pen, is an assault, and I'll have the law of you. Sir, replies the Major, if you are a man of honor, your collector of whatever may be due on the honorable assessment by applying to Major Jackman at the parlors, Mrs. Lirriper's lodgings, may obtain what he wants in full at any moment. When the Major glared at Mr. Buffle with those meaning words, my dear, I literally gasped for a teaspoonful of savolatile in a wine-glass of water, and I says, Pray let it go no further, gentlemen, I beg and beseech of you. But the Major could be got to do nothing else but snort long after Mr. Buffle was gone, and the effect it had upon my whole mass of blood when, on the next day of Mr. Buffle's rounds, the Major spruced himself up and went humming a tune up and down the street, with one eye almost obliterated by his hat, that there are not expressions in Johnson's dictionary to state. But I safely put the street door on the jar, and got behind the Major's blinds with my shawl on and my mind made up, the moment I saw danger to rush out screeching till my voice failed me, and catch the Major round the neck till my strength went, and have all parties bound. I had not been behind the blinds a quarter of an hour when I saw Mr. Buffle approaching with his collecting books in his hand. The Major likewise saw him approaching and hummed louder, and himself approached. They met before the airy railings. The Major takes off his hat at arm's length and says, Mr. Buffle, I believe. Mr. Buffle takes off his hat at arm's length and says, That's my name, sir, says the Major. Have you any commands for me, Mr. Buffle? Says Mr. Buffle, Not any, sir. Then, my dear, both of them bowed very low and haughty, and parted, and whenever Mr. Buffle made his rounds in future, him and the Major always met and bowed before the airy railings, putting me much in mind of Hamlet and the other gentlemen in mourning before killing one another, though I could have wished the other gentlemen had done it fairer and even, if less polite, no poison. Mr. Buffle's family were not liked in this neighborhood, for when you are a householder, my dear, you'll find it does not come by nature to like the assessed, and it was considered besides that a one-horse phaeton ought not to have elevated Mrs. Buffle to that height, especially when purloined from the taxes which I myself did consider uncharitable. But they were not liked, and there was that domestic unhappiness in the family, in consequence of their both being very hard with Miss Buffle and one another on account of Miss Buffle's favoring Mr. Buffle's articled young gentleman, that it was whispered that Miss Buffle would go either into a consumption or a convent, she being so very thin and off her appetite, and two close-shaved gentlemen with white bands round their necks 
peeping round the corner whenever she went out, in waistcoats resembling black pinafores. So things stood toward Mr. Buffle when one night I woke by a frightful noise and a smell of burning, and going to my bedroom window saw the whole street in a glow. Fortunately we had two sets empty just then, and before I could hurry on some clothes I heard the Major hammering at the attic stores and calling out, Dress yourselves. Fire! Don't be frightened. Fire! Collect your presence of mind. Fire! All right. Fire! Most tremendously. As I opened my bedroom door, the Major came tumbling in over himself and me and caught me in his arms. Major, I says, breathless, where is it? I don't know, dearest madam, says the Major. Fire! Jemmy Jackman will defend you to the last drop of his blood. Fire! If the dear boy was at home, what a treat this would be for him. Fire! And altogether very collected and bold, except that he couldn't say a single sentence without shaking me to the very center with roaring fire. We ran down to the drawing-room and put our heads out of window, and the Major calls to an unfeeling young monkey, scampering by, be joyful and ready to split. Where is it? Fire! The monkey answers without stopping. Oh, here's a lark. Old Buffle's been setting his house alight to prevent it being found out that he boned the taxes. Hurrah! Fire! And then the sparks came flying up, and the smoke came pouring down, and the crackling of flames, and spatting of water, and banging of engines, and hacking of axes, and breaking of glass, and knocking at doors, and the shouting and crying and hurrying in the heat and all together gave me a dreadful palpitation. Don't be frightened, dearest madam, says the major. Fire! There's nothing to be alarmed at. Fire! Don't open the street door till I come back. Fire! I'll go and see if I can be of any service. Fire! You're quite composed and comfortable, ain't you? Fire! 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 It was in vain for me to hold the man and tell him he'd be galloped to death by the engines, pumped to death by his overexertions, wet feet it to death by the slop and mess, flattened to death when the roofs fell in. His spirit was up, and he went scampering off after the young monkey with all the breath he had and none to spare, and me and the girls huddled together at the parlor windows looking at the dreadful flames above the houses over the way, Mr. Buffles being round the corner. Presently, what should we see but some people running down the street straight to our door, and then the Major directing operations in the busiest way, and then some more people, and then, carried in a chair similar to Guy Fawkes, Mr. Buffle in a blanket. My dear, the Major has Mr. Buffle brought up our steps and whisked into the parlor and carted out on the sofa, and then he and all the rest of them, without so much as a word, burst away again full speed, leaving the impression of a vision, except for Mr. Buffle, awful in his blanket, with his eyes a-rolling. In a twinkling they all burst back again, with Mrs. Buffle in another blanket, which whisked in and carted out on the sofa, they all burst off again, and all burst back again with Miss Buffle in another blanket, which again whisked in, carted out, they all burst off again, and all burst back again, with Mr. Buffle's articled young gentleman in another blanket him a-holding round the necks of two men, carrying him by the legs, similar to the picture of the disgraceful creature who had lost the fight, but where the chair I do not know, and his hair having the appearance of newly played upon. 
when all four of a row the major rubs his hands and whispers me with what little hoarseness he can gather if our dear remarkable boy was only at home what a delightful treat this would be for him my dear we made them some hot tea and toast and some hot brandy and water with a little comforting nutmeg in it and at first they were scared and low in their spirits but being fully insured got sociable and the first use Mr. Buffle made of his tongue was to call the Major his preserver and his best of friends, and to say, My forever dearest sir, let me make you known to Mrs. Buffle, which also addressed him as her preserver and her best of friends, and was fully as cordial as the blanket would admit of. Also Miss Buffle. The articled young gentleman's head was a little light, and he sat moaning, robina is reduced to cinders robina is reduced to cinders which went more to the heart on account of his having got wrapped in his blanket as if he was looking out of a violin cellar case until mr buffle says robina speak to him miss buffle says dear george and but for the major pouring down brandy and water on the instant which caused a catching in his throat owing to the nutmeg and a violent fit of coughing it might have proved too much for his strength when the articled young gentleman got the better of it mr buffle leaned up against mrs buffle being two bundles a little while in confidence and then says with tears in his eyes which the major noticing wiped we have not been an united family let us after this danger become so take her george the young gentleman could not put his arm out far to do it but his spoken expressions were very beautiful, though of a wandering class, and I do not know that I ever had a much pleasanter meal than the breakfast we took together after we had all dozed, when Miss Buffle made tea very sweetly in quite the Roman style, as depicted formerly at Covent Garden Theatre, and when the whole family was most agreeable, as they have ever proved since that night, when the Major stood at the foot of the fire escape and claimed them as they came down, the young gentleman head foremost, which accounts. And though I do not say that we should be less liable to think ill of one another if strictly limited to blankets, still I do say that we might most of us come to a better understanding if we kept one another less at a distance. Why, there's Wolsenham's lower down on the other side of the street. I had a feeling of much soreness several years respecting what I must still ever call Miss Wolsenham's systematic underbidding and the likeness of the house in Bradshaw having far too many windows, and a most umbrageous and outrageous oak, which never yet was seen in Norfolk Street, nor yet a carriage and four at Walsingham's door, which it would have been far more to Bradshaw's credit to have a drawn cab. This frame of mind continued bitter down to the very afternoon in January last, when one of my girls, Sally Rarigonave, which I still suspect of Irish extraction, though family represented Cambridge, else why abscond with a bricklayer of the Limerick persuasion, and be married in patterns, not waiting till his black eye was decently got round, with all the company fourteen in number, and one horse fighting outside on the roof of the vehicle. I repeat, my dear, my ill-regulated state of mind toward Miss Wolsingham continued down to the very afternoon of January last past, when Sally Rarigenew came banging, I can use no milder expression, into my room with a jump which may be Cambridge and may not, and said, Haroo, Missus! Miss Wolsingham sold up! My dear, 
when I had it thrown in my face and conscience that the girl Sally had reason to think I could be glad of the ruin of a feller creature, I burst into tears and dropped back in my chair, and I says, I am ashamed of myself. Well, I tried to settle to my tea, but I could not do it, what with thinking of Miss Wolsingham and her distresses. It was a wretched night, and I went up to a front window and looked over at Wolsingham's, and as well as I could make it out down the street in the fog, it was the dismalest of the dismal, and not a light to be seen. So at last I say to myself, this will not do, and I puts on my oldest bonnet and shawl, not wishing Miss Wolsingham to be reminded of my best at such a time, and lo and behold you, I goes over to Wolsingham's and knocks. Miss Wolsingham at home, I says, turning my head when I heard the door go, and then I saw it was Miss Wolsingham herself who had opened it, and sadly worn she was, poor thing, and her eyes all swelled and swelled with crying. Miss Wolsingham, I says, it is several years since there was a little unpleasantness betwixt us on the subject of my grandson's cap being down your airy. I have overlooked it, and I hope you have done the same. Yes, Mrs. Lirriper, she says, in a surprise, I have. Then, my dear, I says, I should be glad to come in and speak a word to you. Upon calling her my dear, Miss Wolsingham breaks out a crying most pitiful and a not unfeeling elderly person that might have been better shaved, in a nightcap, with a hat over it, offering a polite apology for the mumps having worked themselves into his constitution, and also for sending home to his wife on the bellows, which was in his hand as a writing-desk, looks out of the back parlour and says, The lady wants a word of comfort, and goes in again. So I was able to say quite natural, Wants a word of comfort, does she, sir? then please the pig, she shall have it. And Miss Wolsingham and me, we go into the front room with a wretched light that seems to have been crying too, and was sputtering out. And I says, Now, my dear, tell me all. And she wrings her hands and says, Oh, Mrs. Lirriper, that man is in possession here, and I have not a friend in the world who is able to keep me with a shilling. It doesn't signify a bit what a talkative old body like me said to Miss Wolsingham when she said that. And so I'll tell you instead, my dear, that I'd have given thirty shillings to have taken her over to tea. Only I durstn't on account of the Major. Not, you see, but what I knew I could draw the Major out like thread, and wind him round my finger on most subjects, and perhaps even on that if I was to set myself to it. But him and me had so often belied Miss Wolsingham to one another that I was shamefaced, and I knew she had offended his pride, and never mine. And likewise I felt timid that the Rarigan girl might make things awkward. So I says, My dear, if you could give me a cup of tea to clear my muddle of a head, I should better understand your affairs. And we had the tea, and the affairs too, and after all it was but forty pounds. And there, she's as industrious and straight a creature as ever lived, and has paid back half of it already. And where's the use of saying more, particularly when it ain't the point? For the point is that when she was a-kissing my hands and holding them in hers, and kissing them again and blessing, 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 I cheered up at last, and I says, Why, what a waddling old goose I have been, my dear, to take you for something so very different. 
ah but i too says she how have i mistaken you come for goodness sake tell me i says what you thought of me oh says she i thought you had no feeling for such a hard hand-to-mouth life as mine and were rolling in affluence i says shaking my sides and very glad to do it for i had been a-choking quite long enough only look at my figure my dear and give me your opinion whether if i was in affluence i should be likely to roll in it that did it we got as merry as griggs whatever they are if you happen to know my dear i don't and i went home to my blessed home as happy and as thankful as could be but before i make an end of it think even of my having misunderstood the major yes for next forenoon the major came into my little room with his brushed hat in his hand and he begins my dearest madam and then put his face in his hat as if he had just come into church as i sat all in amaze he came out of his hat and began again my esteemed and beloved friend and then went into his hat again major i cries out frightened has anything happened to our darling boy no 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 says the major but Miss Wilsingham has been here this morning to make her excuses to me. And by the Lord, I can't get over what she told me. Hoity-toity, Major, I says, you don't know yet that I was afraid of you last night and didn't think half as well of you as I ought. So come out of church, Major, and forgive me like a dear old friend, and I'll never do so any more. And I leave you judge, my dear, whether I ever did or will and how affecting to think of miss wolsingham out of her small income and her losses doing so much for her poor old father and keeping a brother that had had the misfortune to soften his brain against the hard mathematics as neat as a new pin in the three-back represented to lodgers as a lumber-room and consuming a whole shoulder of mutton whenever provided and now my dear i really am a-going to tell you about my legacy if you're inclined to favour me with your attention and I did fully intend to have come straight to it. Only one thing does so bring up another. It was the month of June, and the day before Midsummer Day, when my girl Winifred Madgers, she was what is termed a Plymouth sister, and the Plymouth brother that made away with her was quite right, for a tidier young woman for a wife never came into a house, and afterwards called with the beautifulest Plymouth twins. It was the day before Midsummer Day when Winifred Madgers comes and says to me, A gentleman from the councils wishes particular to speak to Mrs. Lirriper. If you'll believe me, my dear, the councils at the bank where I have a little matter for Jemmy got into my head, and I says, Good gracious! I hope he ain't had any dreadful fall, says Winifred. He don't look as if he had, ma'am. And I says, Show him in. The gentleman came in dark, with his hair cropped, what I should consider too close, and he says very polite, Madame Lirepeau? I says, Yes, sir. Take a chair. I come, says he, from the French consuls. So I saw at once that it wasn't the Bank of England. We have received, says the gentleman, turning his R's very curious and skilful, from the Marie at Saint a communication which I will have the honour to read. Madame Lirriper understands French? Oh, dear, no, says I. Madame Lirriper don't understand anything of the sort. It matters not, says the gentleman. I will translate. With that, my dear, the gentleman, 
after reading something about a department and a Marie, which, Lord forgive me, I supposed till the Major came home was Mary, and never was I more puzzled than to think how that young woman came to have so much to do with it, translated a lot with the most obliging pains, and it came to this, that in the town of Sons in France an unknown Englishman lay a-dying, that he was speechless and without motion, that in his lodging there was a gold watch and a purse containing such and such money and a trunk containing such and such clothes, but no passport and no papers except that on his table was a pack of cards and that he had written in pencil on the back of the Ace of Hearts. To the authorities, when I am dead, pray send what is left as a last legacy to Mrs. Lirriper, 81 Norfolk Street, Strand, London. When the gentleman had explained all this, which seemed to be drawn up much more methodical than I should have given the French credit for, not at that time knowing the nation, he put the document into my hand, and much the wiser I was for that, you may be sure, except that it had the look of being made out upon grocery paper and was stamped all over with eagles. Does Madame Lirriper, says the gentleman, believe she recognizes her unfortunate compatriot? You may imagine the flurry it put me into, my dear, to be talked to about my compatriots. I says, excuse me, would you have the kindness, sir, to make your language as simple as you can? This Englishman unhappy at the point of death, this compatriot afflicted, says the gentleman. Thank you, sir, I says, I understand you now. Now, sir, I have not the least idea who this can be. Has Madame Lirriper no son, no nephew, no godson, no friend, no acquaintance of any kind in France? To my certain knowledge, says I, no relation or friend, and to the best of my belief, no acquaintance. Pardon me, you take locataires, said the gentleman. My dear, fully believing he was offering me something with his obliging foreign manners, snuff for anything I knew, I gave a little bend of my head, and I says, if you credit it, no i thank you i have not contracted the habit the gentleman looks perplexed and says lodgers oh says i laughing bless the man why yes to be sure may it not be a former lodger says the gentleman some lodger that you pardoned some rent you have pardoned lodgers some rent hm, it has happened sir says i but I assure you I can call to mind no gentleman of that description that this is at all likely to be. In short, my dear, we could make nothing of it, and the gentleman noted down what I said and went away. But he left me the paper, of which he had two with him, and when the Major came in I says to the Major as I put it in his hand, Major, here's old Moore's almanac with the hieroglyphic complete for your opinion. It took the Major a little longer to read than I should have thought, judging from the copious flow with which he seemed to be gifted when attacking the organ men, but at last he got through it and stood a-gazing at me in amazement. Major, I says, you're paralyzed. Madam, says the Major, Jemmy Jackman is doubled up. Now, it did so happen that the Major had been out to get a little information about railroads and steamboats, as our boy was coming home for his midsummer holidays next day, and we were going to take him somewhere for a treat and a change. So while the Major stood a-gazing, it came into my head to say to him, Major, I wish you'd go and look at some of your books and maps, and see whereabouts that same town of Sands is in France. 
the major he roused himself and he went into the parlors and he poked about a little and he came back to me and says sens my dearest madam is seventy odd miles south of paris with what i may truly call a desperate effort major i says we'll go there with our blessed boy if ever the major was beside himself it was at the thought of that journey all day long he was like the wild man of the woods after meeting with an advertisement in the papers telling him something to his advantage and early next morning hours before jemmy could possibly come home he was outside in the street ready to call out to him that we was all a-going to france young rosy cheeks you may believe was as wild as the major and they did carry on to that degree that i says if you two children ain't more orderly i'll pack you both off to bed and then they fell to cleaning up the major's telescope to see france with and went out and bought a leather bag with a snap to hang round jemmy and him to carry the money like little fortunatus with his purse end of section four mrs liriper's legacy part one recording by joyce martin